Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 74. Chowatar. That's Urdu. So since our last podcast episode, we've seen three shows in about a week. Yes, we have. And and we started off with a a classic that's been around for, what, 25 25 years? And probably most of you have seen it, or at least a good portion of you have seen it. Yes. Can you guess? Drum roll, please. Did you get the pun, the drum roll? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We saw Stomp, which is a classic percussion show at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Manhattan. It's an off-Broadway show. Lindsay, how does it compare to when you saw it in, what, eighth grade? You know, in eighth grade, I remember being very, like, struck by it because I couldn't believe it was a show that I was seeing in a way. It was, like, the same time as Blue Man Group and Sheer Madness and Stomp. I saw it all around the same age. As an adult, I was just like, wow, this is so loud. And um, Can you describe it for anybody who hasn't seen Stomp? So it's an hour and 45 minutes, which feels like an hour and 45 minutes. And it's basically a show only with percussion. And they make beats, drumming beats through stuff you'd find on the streets of New York. So trash cans, brooms, trash, lighters, um, big bins, sinks. And I would say that it's very inventive of how they make the different sounds. Like it was fun to see the different ideas that they, the director of the company had at the time of creation to do like the lighting, the lighter act was probably the best, my favorite. Um, the lighter act, you mean like with like what you would use to light a cigarette or a candle yeah, with? Yeah, like a zip, zap, zippo. A zippo lighter. Yeah, yeah, and everyone had two and they were creating like not only sounds with like flicking the lighter on and off, but also obviously you could see the flames. So it was creating patterns, um, which I really liked. Everyone was very talented and it was very, very good. But, and you know, it was a completely foreign audience. Like almost no one spoke English in the audience, which was also interesting to see. And there's no talking in the show. So quite easy to see if you don't speak English. Quite easy. Yes. Um, You know, the thing that it lacked a little bit was because they had to focus so much on the beat that they were doing or the rhythm they were doing, the, the performance, like their, their, their actual performance lacked because they were so focused on creating the rhythm. So like some people were good at it and could have fun with the audience while others, it was just like a dead face kind of. So, you know, those are things I notice now as like a 31-year-old versus, you know, a 12-year-old. I thought one of the interesting just sort of parallels to the circus world is how the show is really structured the same way a traditional circus show would be structured with acts and a show flow. And it's basically the broom act and then the trash can act and then the sink act. And you could totally reorder them the way you might reorder a circus show. So Yeah, it's been around for so long and there's a reason why. This is quite true. We also saw a show that's not brand brand new, but it's been around for maybe six months, mm-hmm. playing in Times Square at a venue called the Paradise Club inside the Edition Hotel on 48th Street, I think. Or 47th. Or 47th Street. The show is put together by the House of Yes. Those of you who've been longtime podcast listeners will remember the House of Yes founders, Anya and Kay, from our second or third podcast episode or ever. first. Our first one was just you and I talking. Oh. They're our first interview guests, <laughs> yes, Anya and Kay. Yes. Um, 
And, you know, it doesn't take place at the House of Yes. It takes place in a completely different space, which was kind of weird, to be honest, seeing a House of Yes show not at House of Yes. Yeah, I we were invited by one of the artists, which was awesome to see. And they have a great straps act that the premise is kind of like they're drunk and they're kind of fighting. And then they go into the straps, which is a great. And two girls straps, acts, two girls. which you don't often see. Yeah. And I thought it was a great premise for for the act um, for a straps act. Two girls. It was great. Um, you know, what's great about the House of Yes aesthetic is that it's kind of unpolished which is why I think it works so well at the House of Yes in Bushwick. And it feels very, like, disheveled in a good way. And, like... And DIY. DIY. So, like, the artists uh, and, like, the unpolishedness of the acts at the House of Yes is part of the charm of it. Seeing it at a very polished, like, trying to feel very uppity and... Fancy. Fancy space didn't quite mesh well with... For me, at least, um, I wish it was a little bit more polished is not the right word. Either I wish the space was done by House of Yes, where they would have decorated it in the House of Yes style, or that the show had been more polished to fit the room. There was just a bit of a disconnect between the two. Yeah, because there were some strange choices. Um, You know, I've actually been noticing this in a few, few shows recently. It's like trying to get this party vibe started. And I think it's really, I mean, we tried to do it in slumber. It is a very hard thing to achieve. And it only works, I think, on certain nights and like with certain audiences. And, and certain it, kinds of shows. And certain kinds of shows. And I think when you're like, who's ready to party? You're automatically making the audience have to go to that level at the beginning of a show, which is maybe not the right choice. I think you can get there by the end because the show has happened, the audience has gone on the journey with you. But, it, I mean, we did it in slumber, too, at the beginning. It was like, party, you know? And I think, like, it's hard to get right into it. Um, you know, one thing that really uh, was a bit of a problem, which I don't... That kind of can lead into the next show that we saw, is the um, when it's immersive and when the uh, when the performers are in the audience moving around. And I think I've seen it done really well where everyone feels very like practiced and rehearsed and knows how to deal with the audience. But I was sitting at a table and um, there's like a silks moment at the end of the show that you know happens over the audience, which is cool. But the way in which it uh, was orchestrated, the guy helping her on the silks like ran into my chair and pushed me into a, ta- a table and it actually like, hurts, hurt. So I went... Oh my God, ouch. Like I just couldn't even like keep, keep it, it in because I just was rammed into a table. And to his, to be fair, he did come over and like whisper me. He was like, sorry about that. You're going to want to lean back. And I was like, hmm, if I had just been told before, like, can we move your chair here and we'll move you back? You know, it would have been like not even an issue and I wouldn't have been in the way. But I think like if you're dealing with audiences, making sure that the path for the performers are clearly marked, marked and and they know how to interact with the audience and not hit an audience member would be good. Cause he hit me twice. So like, you know, there were, there were good things about it. Um, and there's like a cool meal before, which I couldn't eat cause I was, you know, gluten free, <laughs> but Josh ate it. I did. I enjoyed it. There was some good prosciutto, some kind of weird presentational aspects to the food, but overall I would say like solid house of yes show. Honestly, I would 
first recommend people go see a show at House of Yes to understand the vibe, and then if they love it, go see yeah. the Paradise Club. Um, I think it's running to the end of the year, so if you are a House of Yes regular and you do want to go see it, now is your chance. So on Saturday, we saw a show called The Daydreamers, which was essentially a uh, dance piece done by a group called Shinsa, and Shinsa is uh, a dance troupe choreographed by Bo Park. Uh, Bo Park is a South Korean choreographer who was in Slumber. She's amazing. She choreographs in a very similar style to uh, what we work in, urban dance. She's originally from South Korea, but moved to New York. So she's got a bit of that K-pop vibe going on and a bit of the New York vibe going on, mm-hmm. which sort of is a bit of a point of difference from the West Coast style that we tend to work in more often. This was her second show. We saw her first one last year. The theme of this one was really about Bo's life coming from South Korea to America and, you know, I actually quite liked how she clued in the title of Daydreamers into the performance of that it's sort of okay to daydream and wish for better things and think of the future and mm-hmm. how that's a, a, a positive quality. Uh, and it had a bunch of great performers in it, including some upcoming uh, Beyond Babel understudies. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Granted, I, that was great. you know, it was her second show ever. It was their second performance of their second show ever. <laughs> so they were still working out the kinks of it a little bit. But uh, just really great energy. Nice to see this dance developing more and more and more performance opportunities for it. Mm-hmm. I shed a tear at the end. It was very nice. And, you know, it was immersive. So they were moving the audience around. Hence why I was kind of talking about that before. They were moving the audience around to, like, different rooms. But not different. It was, like, one big room that they sectioned off into different They turned areas. it into, like, four areas, basically. And so you'd go to the... But one thing I... I set up intermission because I, I think with audience movement you just have to be so specific like at the the paradise club show like you have to just be so specific in placement where everything is happening and how you're moving the audience to accommodate that and at first the kids moving the audience around were saying like their first two rows sit and then all of a sudden it was every row if you see someone behind you sit down which is basically every row except the last row and i was like if you can just keep a consistent if you're in the front half of the audience, please sit. And then they start doing that. And it's as an audience member, you just want to have very clear instructions because you don't know what's happening. You know, like you're experiencing it for the first time. So, but it was an interesting way of seeing an immersive show that I hadn't seen before. I think like in that, just like kind of like moving the, the audience point of view rather than like going through rooms or through a building yes it felt new although also quite regular hard to explain honestly but they just did five shows i think you'll probably have to wait a year to see the next one yeah but follow shinsa on instagram they post loads of you know dance content as we do as well yeah so those are the shows we saw and there was just a topic i wanted to talk about a little bit today on our sort of preamble pre-show which is to do with the state of funding of circus and shows in general in america And we spoke a little bit to our guests later in the episode about this. Uh, And offline, I've spoken to a few different producers and previous guests about their take. But it comes down to if you want to do shows these days, if you want to do the next stomp, if you want to do the next showcase like Shinsa and Bo just did, how on earth do you fund it in America? And it was on my mind because maybe two weeks ago, I went to this circus conference that was held in New York, all sort of talking about the state of funding and how bad it is and how... Wouldn't it be great if America had more government funding? And it just, it turned a little bit into a complaint-a-thon, which these things 
tend to do of why isn't America better? Why doesn't America have more government funding? And just for those people who are so willing to say that every time we complain, there's just a few things I want to bring up. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be government funding for the arts entirely, but it's not the solution to every problem and certainly not in America. And it's only getting worse. Like you'll listen to the episode with Cecil today, our, our, our guest, and she grew up in a time where government funding was pretty prevalent. And then sort of around the 80s, it really started to take a turn and disappear. And I would say by this point, it's pretty much gone. Part of the reason for that is because Americans have lost their appetite for government funding. The NEA, which is the National Endowments for the Arts, gives less money to arts projects than Kickstarter does every year, which is to say that people are just generous. You can find people online who will generously donate to your arts project more than the government will. And in defense of people who aren't pro-NEA, because every artist I hear is always like, oh, the NEA should have more money. But part of me does wonder, like, if you're, it's a national organization, and if you're living in Texas, like, why are you necessarily funding a dance show that you might see in New York, or vice versa? If you're, you know, if you make $100 that week and 50 cents of it goes to a show you'll never see in a city you don't live in, it's not really a benefit that you can, you can get necessarily. Of course, if it's local, it's a little bit different, but the National Endowments for the Arts is a large national organization. And, you know, maybe the the money that your taxes are going to pay for goes to a show you hate, and that money could be spent on something you think is spent better on. So I'm sympathetic to, you know, complaints about the NEA, but really what I want to talk about is how people can just fundraise in the current state and not be dependent on the government. And... Getting to my, my larger point, I read this book this week by Ken Davenport called um, How to Fundraise for any the Arts or Anything, dot, 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 which I would strongly recommend to anybody who's interested in uh, producing, producing theater, producing dance, producing circus, producing music, because Ken really lays out a number of strategies for fundraising from rich people, which maybe people will go, oh, that sounds icky and gross, and you know, I assume most people have heard that America has this insane level of income inequality, which is you know probably not good. But what it does mean is that there are, I think, literally millions of millionaires in America who you could go and find and try to ask money for for your project. Or when I say ask, you know, you're really asking them as an investor in many cases or as a nonprofit. So if it's a nonprofit, that's a donation. And if it's a for-profit company, that's an investment. And okay. I'm going to cut off your monologue. Okay. I, I've worked at so many nonprofit theater organizations, right? Where like, obviously when I first started 10 years ago, the nonprofit funding from the government was much more prevalent than it is now. Like Time Warner would give a lot. And now that Time Warner was acquired by, I forget, at and or something, um, their funding dried up. So I get it's getting harder and harder. But I also think that some people just like don't know these people. Like, how do you even find these really rich, wealthy people? And an easier way is to like apply to grants, you know, where you're kind of you can go online, you can apply for the grant. Hopefully you get a little. I'm not anti grant application. And many grants are given by foundations that are run by rich people. So many rich people set up foundations that you just go online, you look them up, you know, the Ford Foundation, you find out how to apply for it, and you apply and you can get money as a nonprofit, and that has nothing to do with government funding. Well, then you should be specific, because if you're okay with, like, fu- uh, nonprofit funding, 
I'm okay with nonprofit funding. I'm okay with either if you're a for-profit or nonprofit. I'm just sick of going to these circus conferences and everybody saying, oh, I wish the government gave us more money to do our circus. Well, when people complain about the lack of government funding in America, what do you think the core root of the complaint is? I think it's just they see other com- other countries they've often never been to, or if they have been to them, they've only been for a short period of time and go, oh, why can't we be like that? Mm-hmm. And what I one of the other things I was talking to another producer uh, this week about was, and I bring it up with Cecil, is are the places that have the best circus arts that way because they have government funding or because they have successful commercial circus businesses there. So, for example, is Montreal so successful because it has Cirque du Soleil there mm-hmm. or because there's government funding? Granted, I'll, I'll give you, th- those of you who are shouting the podcast right now, <laughs> I understand Cirque du Soleil got a million dollars in seed funding from the government, but they've made billions without government funding. Right, but I guess the the argument would be, well, without the million dollars from the government, how could they have even gotten to the place that they are now? Which I agree with. I mean, like, if you if you can get a million dollars from your government to start a circus company, like, I think I, I get your argument, but if in America if we could get a million dollars to start the next big Cirque du Soleil, but the American version of it, wouldn't that also then add into your, like, debate of this because I think if we'd have an amazing big company that would fund and help grow smaller ones well I think if you just gave a million dollars to a random person to start a circus company in America the odds of it ending up like Cirque du Soleil are very very slim in general just the like whatever you want to count the one in five one in four success ratio but the greater thing I'm getting at is the reason I think people were willing to take risks and give money to Seven Fingers or give money to Circle Walls or any new startup companies is because Cirque du Soleil had proven a market mm-hmm. for it in a commercial sense. But they still got government funding to start. But they still got government funding to start. And going back to the point of, you know, Cirque du Soleil's commercial success led to more businesses. Part of the reason that Broadway is and New York is this theater cent- cent- center of the world, same with London, is not because the government gives money to Broadway shows. It's because there's so much commercial investment in Broadway shows, and that also supports an ecosystem for nonprofits, where well, yeah. commercial producers are just giving cash to nonprofits to develop work. Mm-hmm. You know, and just going further back, it's not like Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, or like before the you know real nonprofit started in the 1940s and 1950s, were getting government money. Like in the heyday of circus being enormous, I know it's different. We don't live 200 years ago. Still, these weren't like government funded organizations that made it big. These were commercial organizations that figured out a way either to be lean startups Mm -hmm. and then grow or find a rich person or company to invest in them. And I get it. Maybe you don't completely agree with me, but I think just sitting at these conferences and complaining about, man, I wish there was more government funding is just not a good use of that time. It definitely doesn't do anything. Um, But complaining about anything like never gets you anywhere. So like, I totally understand that. I also think though that uh, the one distinction I think people need to make because frankly there's no government funding for any of the arts not just specifically circus it's not just like we don't give to the circus well that's not literally true some arts organizations do get government funding oh yeah no what I'm saying it's not like there's a ton of it for other organizations it's not like these nonprofit theaters are getting loads and loads of money like I know I've worked for so many they are not getting massive amount of money from the government yeah maybe maybe they get 10 or 20 thousand dollars a year yeah, and like the big ones maybe get like a hundred grand over three years or something. And that's like a win. I also think that when people are complaining about 
the government funding in America, it's not necessarily, well, A, you have to be specific because it's, why is it just government funding? Is it like funding in general for nonprofits or is it like, what is it about government funding that they feel like is lacking and why, if it was more robust, it would be greater? Because I do think there are actually a lot of avenues that you can go to raise your money. There are a lot of grants from private organizations, from trusts, from other nonprofits, other nonprofits. So I think like that's a little confusing when you make the argument to me. Or not like confusing, but I would like to specify the one thing about, because in my head, I'm like, well, why are we focused on government funding? You know, like well, I think in circus, we focus on it because we think in Canada and we think in France and I think that's really it. Maybe Australia. Yeah. Oh, there's oodles and oodles of government funding. I just spoke to a German um, circus academic maybe two or three weeks ago. She was telling me Germany's just like America. There's essentially no money for it. You cross the border, you go to France and you see it. And, you know, maybe we all wish we lived in France. And I know Americans who moved to France and Belgium and use that government funding. Yeah. But it's not necessarily like you go over there and you're going to see shows you love. But I guess, like, what's what's the... The reason why you want it is the reason you want government funding to do a show one time, because that to me is like kind of a waste. If it's like, I want government funding to start a company that could grow and create jobs and show a lot of people our art. That's different to me. And just, I'm sorry, this government funding page, one thing that just drives me additionally crazy about it, if you were to make that pitch and you wanted the MTA, which runs the subway system in New York City, they're a government organization, they say, hey, we're looking for contractors. Please apply to, like, work on the MTA. That's not as employed. That's if you're an electrician and you have an electrics company, they'll hire your company to go and, you know, work on the MTA and they'll give out money. Or if you're a government contractor, you know, they'll pay commercial companies to make tanks. The government won't give money to commercial producers. They'll only give money to right. nonprofit arts, which doesn't make any sense to me. I get that nonprofits should have funding. I'm not, this is not an anti-nonprofit thing, but why is it that in our specific sector, the government only gives to nonprofits, but in other sectors they'll give to commercial companies? Mm, yeah, I don't know. It just seems strange. and uh, Especially when, like, you know, in New York, Broadway is what's raking in a lot of the the profit for the city. Like, it is, makes, like, I forget the statistic, we should look it up, but it makes, like, I forget how many millions and millions and millions of dollars. And you know where all those, I would say probably over 50% of those millions and millions of dollars go? Where? To the Schubert Organization. Yeah, which is and, a nonprofit organization a non-profit. that funds. So the Schuberts, right. who own 20-plus theaters on Broadway... They're a commercial business owned by a nonprofit. So, so they I make the money commercially right. and then they give it out in these grants we're talking about. But afterwards. to be fair, I d- so I think the, 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 complain- the complaining needs to just be more specific. Because to complain in the sense of obviously we know there's not that much government funding for the arts. What we would like is to have the same opportunities to apply for the grants, the theatrical grants for circus sh- st- shows as theater, traditional theater shows, because I think that's the problem also. It's like a lot of these grants and nonprofits and, and government funding, you can only apply with a theater. Um, a nonprofit. And that takes like over a year. Even if you're like, hey, Josh, I'm just going to start a nonprofit. Great. It's going to take you a year from when you start it to right. get it certified as a nonprofit. Right. And you have to jump through plenty of other hoops. Uh, just the last thing I would say to this is, 
I just want these conversations to start turning towards reality a little bit. And maybe we spend the first five minutes of these conferences be lamenting government, but then let's spend the next 55 minutes of our hour talking about what we can actually do and yeah. not the rest of that time saying, I wish we were like France. <laughs> Anyways, on today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Cecil McKinnon. But before we do that, we're going to give a shout out to our sponsors over at CircusTalk.com. The circus industry's number one resource for job information, events, and news. So a couple things that I noticed this week that I thought were particularly interesting, starting in the job section. Circus Mercus, my alma mater, is looking for a development manager and executive assistant. This person would be there to help Jen Carlo, who's the executive director. Wonderful woman, strongly recommend this job for people who think that might be a good fit. Also, Theater Mama in Miami, Florida is looking for circus artists for a bunch of special events over the Christmas holiday season. So if you are a Floridian looking for some work, go over to Circus Talk to the jobs page and take a look at that. On their events page, uh, they point out that the National Circus Festival of Ireland is happening from November 14th to the 17th. Uh, that looked pretty cool, actually, but I don't think we're going to make it over to Ireland. The application deadline for Code Arts, which is a circus school in Holland, is coming up. How to apply for that school and that program. All the information is online on their website. And finally, my favorite part of the website is the news section. And we have a little bit of sad news this week. They had a wonderful obituary about the Circus Monty founder, Hildegard Muntweiler who passed away a few weeks ago. For those who haven't seen it, Circus Monty is a beautiful, classical Swiss circus in a yellow and red tent. A uh, wonderful show. I am sure she will be uh, sorely missed within the Swiss circus community. So on this week's episode, as we've talked about a few times already, we have Cecil McKinnon, who is our previous guest, Jack Marsh's mother. And she, as you'll hear, worked... With the Pickle Family Circus, she worked with Flora. She's an established actress in New York. And she, this year, is working with Big Apple as the director with Jack. And um, she's a very interesting person. I had loads of fun talking to her. And I think you guys will enjoy it. And if you like our podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes. And you can Twitter tweet us or email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. And if you have an argument against Josh. Or Lindsay. <laughs> I think more people will be on my side. But maybe, who knows? Maybe everyone thinks we're, we're crazy. <laughs> you know, it's always fun to have a conversation like this and explore different ways of thinking about it. So if you have any ideas, like email us. Here is our episode with Cecil. Well, thank you so much for coming over and coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Would you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you're from? Well, I'm from the Midwest. I uh, came to New York as soon as I could, and I went uh, to NYU to what is now the acting program at Tisch. And uh, so that was... Uh, where in the Midwest? Um, from a combination of Chicago and Kentucky. Did you know you wanted to do performing arts? Yeah. So it started when you were little. Yeah. I mean, I think most people who stay in it for their whole lifetime, yeah. just, that's just what they do. <laughs> was there a show or company you saw as a kid that made you be like, that's the thing? Oh, I hardly ever saw any theater at that time. Um, I mean, there was none anywhere near me. It's not like Chicago is now. Um, and no, it's just I made my brothers and sisters rehearse with me or my neighborhood friends and put on shows. That's all I ever you know, did as recreation as a 
I remember f- at five or six. I don't know before that, but I, I always did that. And uh, when did the circus element start t- coming into your life? Or did it, was um, it always there? No, I'd never been to a circus, I don't think. Just like I'd never been to the... I just had never been into much of live theater. I was occasionally taken to a ballet or mm. a symphony, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But that was about... It's kind of nice, though, to yeah. not be inundated with, like, ideas that you... Preconceived notions of what it should or shouldn't yeah, be. Yeah, I and, mean, right. We didn't have a TV. I, yeah. There just wasn't that much around for me at that time, which was fine. Mm-hmm. But so I don't know why... Well, except there's the tradition in the Midwest... Uh, of family theatricals. It's quite common, or at least it used to be. And uh, What people, do you mean by family theatricals? Well, like people put on pageants and um, and people I knew did that with their families and invite friends over to come and see it. And sort of a, you know, sort of, uh, they called it tableau vivant at one point where it was like a painting brought to life, oh, you know, wow. or, you know, this sort of thing used to go on. Or another, there's a town, I don't know why this all randomly, but there's a town in Tennessee I used to go through called Red Boiling Springs, and they did a town uh, pageant every year about the founding of the town and the, <laughs> you know, the whole history oh of gosh. the town. And the whole town was in it. There was basically oh, so cool. almost no, you know. And so, yeah, I think there's a strong tradition that way because, you know, my family, as my aunt says, we went to the wrong place at the wrong time for centuries. So, so sort of out in Kansas in the middle of nowhere, you know, there's like not a whole lot to do. So you entertain yourselves by putting together dramatic pieces in the living room. So what gave you the confidence to move to New York? Yeah. That seems like quite a change. I don't know. I just, oh, well, yeah, it was. Nobody, my, you know, nobody thought it was a good idea, but I knew. But I knew it was a good idea. I don't know why. I just was like, Got here as soon as I could. Was the appeal just the city or the ability to see theater and be part the of city, that community? The city theater, um, theater schools were just starting up, kind mm. of, and um, I it was a stab in the dark. I knew nothing. It was just how big a class size was it when you started at the at NYU at NYU? Well, oh, like your teach, your teach, program, what is now called grad acting, was there then? Just anybody didn't matter what you were academically, but. It was small, like 18 or Oh, 19, wow. Not a big... You got in by audition. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you just got there and... I don't know how that happened. I just auditioned. <laughs> Welcome to the big city. <laughs> so is that a four-year program? Oh, no. It was... Uh, well, it depends. Yeah. But you could go there without a high school degree. You could go there... Oh, wow. With a college degree. You could... There's a whole mix of people at that time. It's gotten a little more formalized. Yes, yes. So once you were in school, did you just see yourself going a traditional kind of actor... Play, play kind of uh, route? No, or? I was always interested in um, in popular theater, in theater that would reach as many people as possible. And I think that's how circus got into it. And Javi Burgess was teaching there. And, oh, he was uh, doing the juggling? Yeah. He, oh. Well, not just juggling. He taught oh, tumbling, he's a tight wire, tight wire, right. trapeze. And, uh, and then and we, when we were still in school, formed a troupe under with him and we had a studio on the Bowery and performed in the park and uh, did fairly well, you know, made money, which was important. And uh, then from that, a couple of people in that who I don't think were at NYU, but anyway, they went out to the San Francisco Mime Troupe and uh, taught them to juggle and got involved there. And then after that, 
uh, I was still in touch with them, and I was doing a show that was very long running here, and the mime troupe came. They were doing a show that was very long running, so we would meet after shows or in between shows and juggle and do stuff, you know, uh, and all night. Sometimes we would juggle, all, we would work all night. Uh, and uh, so that was how I, through the mom troupe, I met Larry and Peggy and we started the Pickle Family Circus on the West Coast. Uh, well, first we were the Pickle Family Jugglers and we traveled around. And Gypsy, who I'm sure you know. Oh, yes. yeah. Also previous guest. Yeah, yeah. previous, previous yeah, guest. Yeah, Let's see the and Lorenzo and yeah. Lorenzo, of course. <laughs> but before Lorenzo was born, Gypsy traveled. But we had a small Dodge van which overheated all the time. And Peggy, who could do anything, rebuilt the top with our help, <laughs> fiberglass top, and made a bed up there and a bed in the front for Jip and and me. So we had, we all could fit in this Dodge van. Oh my God! <laughs> traveled across country. By the by, that point had you been seeing other circuses, or were you still? Oh fan? yeah, yeah. And because by then we were booked into circuses, and uh, we'd done a little bit of TV. And by that time, I'd been doing theater too, and uh, and uh, so yeah. And then that they wanted to expand to the, to the circus. I was like, let's just keep traveling this truck. We don't need to expand. But they expanded. <laughs> And um, put an ad in the paper, and circus performers, and Bill, everyone answered that ad. So that's how he joined it, and it was kind of just like that. <laughs> Natural <laughs> yeah. growth. The story it's of like, the Pickle Family Circus is just amazing. But yeah. you, you seem to be one of these few people who sit in this sort of junction between theater and circus throughout your yeah, career. Yeah, I have gone back and forth always. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to something that we've noticed, which is just the difference in culture, that with circus people, there seems to be a very... Um, self-starter, DIY, take care of yourself kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. I think in part because you're always on to the next show and it's always about your act. Mm -hmm. While with theater, there's much more structure. You have a stage manager who has a clear role. You have a production mm -hmm. manager, the mm -hmm. director, you have a playwright. And circus doesn't really have those things right. always in the same way. Right. How do you see the differences between the two forms? Well, at a certain point, I, I did a great deal of Shakespeare with Shakespeare and Company. And uh, just, I think Shakespeare is very much like circus. Like mm. there's, you know, there's the threads of comedy and serious things that going through. And I'm not sure he, ha I mean, I know he didn't have a stage manager. <laughs> you know, he was right. like, <laughs> oh no, and, okay, you go, okay, I'll go. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think theater actually, and it certainly does, uh, come from the same roots. Like in the 19th century, theaters were places people shouted and carried mm -hmm. on, you know, as in Shakespeare's time. Then there was a sort of decision made sometime in the 19th century that everybody should be quiet and pay absolute strict attention and be, behave themselves in, in a sort of more middle-class or upper-class way mm -hmm. than a popular form. Uh, so that's maybe when they diverged, although the clowns have always gone back and forth between yeah. circus and, and theater. You know, basically, uh, we were reading. Was that, I, I want to find this article because it, it was so interesting. In the in one of our classes at Columbia a while ago, it was like the history of theater, basically. Uh -huh. But it was talking about the start of of circus and really how it was like the everyman's art form, right? And how it felt like very attainable and achievable for everyone to go. Yeah. And then theater was like that too. And then it just became and, not. And theater diverged from it. Yeah. yeah. But circus yeah. still feels, I mean, not I all circus. So. Well, but that's why I do circus. Yeah. I want it to be not just for the few friends of mine who have 
people, right. but for a bigger audience, a wider audience, an audience of people I don't necessarily know or agree with. Mm-hmm. You know, I want that's who it should be for. Yeah. So you bounced from New York to San Francisco. Right. Um, how was, were you just ready to move to California out of the New York theater scene and um, join a little circuit, up, <laughs> upstart circus? No, I think uh, the sequence was, uh, I mean, we were doing that. I was, you know, uh, we were traveling with our, as the Pickle Family Jugglers. And uh, then- Where did the name Pickle Family Jugglers come from? The, oh, we were doing a TV show Someone met us in the park and said, come to ABC, I think it was, which is a big building in Midtown. And the downstairs desk said, who shall I say? (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, this brilliant guy had been saying, you know, K's K's are funny. P's and K's are funny. L's are not funny, you know. (laughs) So so we said, the pickles. (laughs) And this, you know, as a joke. And this receptionist goes, yeah. Pickles are here. We just thought it was so funny oh my God, that we that stayed the so name. Funny. We just kept the name. Pickles. <laughs> because it was a funny word that was really sure. all. You know, it had yes. nothing to do with anything. Right. Like most of life was random. <laughs> Sorry, I cut yeah. you off. So you were going with the Pickle Family Jugglers. Jugglers, yes, that was us. And uh, what, were, what was the question? Basically that transition from New York to San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And, and well, so, so Peggy and Larry were based in San Francisco and I was based in New York. So it was a constant going back and forth, um, sometimes driving cross country, some, you know, uh, and at a certain point I thought, well, what I should do, and the show I was doing here closed, what I should do is go out West and see if I can, you know, combine, go to LA and then I can get, San Francisco's a lot closer than New York. Mm -hmm. So I did and did a little bit of TV and, um, but it, well, I, I and I kept. I was commuting up to San Francisco, and that is actually a longer. It's really not close by. No, it's not like Boston, New York. No, at all, no, it's, it's far. So then I got a job at ACT, which is the regional theater, and that sort of combined things. Uh, and the Pickle Family Circus had started then, so I could do, I could make a steady living. Um, what was your favorite show that you were in in New York? Hmm. Favorite. I don't know because at different times like we're like I still adore Mac Wellman and I was mm-hmm. in an early Mac Wellman play mm-hmm. and I just think he's a fantastic writer he is uh Christopher Marlowe's uh Faustus I really liked um so it was like a really wide yeah. range of yeah random things yeah did improv too sometimes oh cool yeah although in those days it was a different scene but right you know not huge Right. Now everyone can do improv. Everybody does it. <laughs> Whether they should or not. So, you know, from my understanding of the Pickle family history, it sort of just grew and grew until it sort of evolved and there was new management that took over it after a while. Well, it was commu- at that time we did everything communally. Yeah. Uh, and so so it was a communally run. Uh, I think there were nine or ten people or something running it. And then we'd, we'd bring in other acts, but it was basically a nucleus of people. And uh, I can't remember, it's funny how it was all very fraught, but I can't remember the exact reasons why it shifted. Um, one of which, one of them was that the Larry, Jeff, Hoyle, do you know Jeff? And uh, Bill all wanted to do solo shows mm. and uh, others of us weren't as interested. So it kind of, uh, that group of people kind of, 
went off in different directions. And so other people, and it, then it turned into an indoor show. That was after I'd left. Yeah. And uh, I'd had my first child by then. And, uh, and so it, it evolved into a different show naturally because mm. different people were running it. And when you were in the show, did you mainly juggle? Yeah, I did juggling and acrobatics. Oh, what acrobatic? Like just floor? Just tum- uh, yeah, just floor, like, like you know, walkovers. And, you, know, tum- you know, we would do like the movers are here. And so the um, the moving company would come in and they'd mishandle <laughs> things and throw things and dive over things and, you know, like that. Oh, fun. Things like that. You know, you don't really come across all that many uh, female jugglers, and not so much in a sexist yeah. way, but it tends, yeah. tends to appeal more it to used like. used to be. You know? Yeah. yeah, it used to be almost all men. It hurts your hands a lot. Yeah. Uh, but Peggy and I had a, a great time with it. With it. Um, we saw um, Big Apple, which you directed this uh-huh. year, and we were watching the juggling act, which is done Kyle by Drake's. Kyle Drake. Yeah. And then he goes, Oh, rings look like the best thing to juggle. And I'm like, Ooh. I'm pretty sure they're the most painful. <laughs> they are thing really to painful. Yeah. Well, it's like you just have so much to grab. Yeah, it looks like that, but they actually hit, they are very painful. That's what Josh said. He goes, No, Lindsay, they're very yeah. painful. Very I was like, painful. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you get so it doesn't hurt because then, you know, like calluses hurt. and stuff. Oh yeah, just the nerves. Well, when yeah. we first started dating, Josh was like, If you are going to be a part of the circus, you need to try try something and know how hard it is and i was like okay and of course we did flying trapeze ah, or swinging yeah. trapeze i didn't yeah. i didn't leave the, i didn't leave the trapeze right. but um my hands killed mm-hmm. and i was like I, it did actually give me such appreciation for every single yeah. thing that yeah. i watch now you know yeah and your knees if oh you're my on god trapeze or your ankles every, i mean everything i had to get two cups of coffee to like ice my hands <laughs> it was horror it was very horror. it looks painful it probably is yeah um, so after finishing up with the Pickle family, yes, where I came did, back. what were you interested in? Like, did you be like, I want to do more theater, I want to do more circus? Yeah, I came, where was your I came mind? back to New York really to do theater. It's sort of the 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 all the people that I was most connected to with Pickle family were leaving, and I came back to New York with my husband and baby. And the Shakespeare and Company was starting at just about the same time, so I went up there and did Shakespeare for a long time. Uh, but ironically, the first year I was up there, there was a woman practicing vaulting in the in the sort of field, and uh, I was up very early with this baby who was, you know, like all babies or most babies likes early morning hours, and actors do not like. Right. We live in communities, so I would go for infinitely long walks for like hours, and uh, exhausted walking along. But this woman was vaulting, and I knew a little bit about it because we worked state fairs and county fairs as a juggling actor. So I would keep up the horse. I'd put the baby on my back and keep up the horse for her. And her name's Anouk. And uh, she, have you met Anouk? No, but I know who she is. You know who she is. So she's a wonderful woman. And uh, we became friends. And at the end of that season, she, uh, I gave her an introduction to Paul Binder at the Big Apple. And she came down and uh, met David Balding, who was the producer for Big Apple at that time. And they splintered off from Big Apple and founded Circus Flora and contacted me. And I had never thought I would do circus again, but I was. they were starting at the Spoleto Festival in South Carolina. And I thought, oh, that would be fun. And I just had my second kid. 
and um, Jack. Jack. Yeah. Uh, previous podcast. Jack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also previous podcast. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. yeah. I'm connected to all your podcasts. I know. You really are. The grandmother of all your podcasts. <laughs> anyway, so we went to the Spoleto Festival, which was indeed really fun. And uh, the circus was set up in Marion Square, which is the main square in the middle of the city. It was great. Did you have, like, when I did acting, Shakespeare was very, very hard for me. Like, uh-huh. I went to a program in London to try to get better. <laughs> I don't know how I got in, but I got in. And I I just was, like, so bad at it. Uh-huh. Like, my professor was like, Shaky would be rolling in his grave. <laughs> and did you have training, or did it just come naturally to you? No, I'd done, um, well, in in acting school, I'd done you? a little mm-hmm. bit. Of, but it was daunting, sure, especially coming from where I come from. But... Uh, um, Shakespeare and Company has a whole training system, and by that time I had done that a lot and taught voice, and um, I, you have to do a lot of things to make a living, especially if you start having children. So <laughs> I was doing all these things to try to make a living. And uh, like dialect voice, no coaching or singing, not singing. Um, voice, which is not really dialect, it's how the speaking voice mm. is in mm-hmm. theater, mm-hmm. and therefore connected a lot to Shakespeare often. Yeah, uh, yeah I use a lot of breath control with Shakespeare. Yeah, that, but also thought. <laughs> yeah. Know? And uh, so that, I did a lot of training in that mm-hmm. and worked on it for a long time and really got to love it. I didn't love it at first. I still can't read a Shakespeare play. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't I know, it's so much readable. better to see. Meant to, be, meant to be listened to, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. But for, you know, we have a lot of young people who listen to the podcast. Uh-huh. Is there a particular Shakespeare uh, play or show, other than maybe Romeo and Juliet, right. other than the big hits that you would recommend <laughs> if it's on in their town? Or oh, yeah, like Comedy of Errors. Oh, yeah. I know that yeah. one, which is, he, he first wrote really, you know, like Commedia scenarios, that and Love's Labor's Lost, which is, got a pantalone and a brigade, you know, it has the characters of mm-hmm. those early ones of his. The Comedia dell'arte character. Yeah. yeah. They're in Love's Labors and uh, and Comedy of Errors too. In particular, I, I think, um, of course, Midsummer, but it's... You so know, you're drawn more to the comedy side. I oh, I've always really liked and been very interested in women in comedy, you know, for forever, you know, uh, because it's... It's a fascinating topic. You know, it's not really funny to hit a woman. Uh, right, <laughs> you know, right, right. Whereas hitting a man is funny, you know, yeah. or, you know, you know, in that kind of thing. But, you know, it's just not right. quite as funny. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. But it's very but funny it's, option for a woman to hit a man, depending yeah, on the depending yes. circumstances. But, yeah. you know, it's, 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 true. it's uh, you know, it's, you have to take it in. It's like, you know, it's, it's not the same. And, no. it, and it's not that women aren't funny, but you have to find... Its own mm-hmm. way, you know. Yeah, and, find the own sort of game that you can play with. That. Yeah, and also within your time of how you want to present women and how you mm-hmm. think what you want that to be, you know, like like in circus too. You know, I think that's changed a whole lot in uh, over the years. I mean, how women are presented in circus. Mm-hmm. In what way do you think it's changed? Um, it used to be women were a complete adornment and mm-hmm. and. Uh, on the whole, not always. A lot of old circus families, the, the women have always had powerful positions. But there's always been, you know, the sort of lovely assistant of the male person who does the act. That, sure. That's the, that's the most traditional thing you see 
or used to see. Yeah, very typical yeah. of maybe a juggling act where you have that just yeah, assistant. Yeah, yeah, to assistant the prop. Just, oh, yeah. you dropped your yeah. ball yeah. here. Yeah. And she's looking scantily clad and, you know, and he's yeah. fully dressed. Yeah, yeah, that's the typical, you know, I think we've gotten away from that, which yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. 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 Well, jumping back to uh, Circus Flora and the origins right. of that. So right. you moved to St. St. Louis, correct? No, I never no. moved to St. Louis. No. No. Um, Circus Flora started in South Carolina at the yeah. Split Up Festival. And then we were touring all over the place. And we stopped in St. Louis. And uh, we were looking for somewhere to... We had an elephant and a lot of horses. Somewhere for them to go for, I think, three weeks. And someone in St. Louis said... Well, first the mayor offered us some land. And then someone else said, well... There's this woman who has a lot of, a farm out just outside of St. Louis. Uh, perhaps she likes animals, perhaps. You know, so we met her and went to stay there. And David fell in love with her and married her in the circus. Oh. Stayed there. oh, that's so funny. That's how that happened. Yeah, that's how it happened. Oh my, I always just yeah. thought it originated in St. Louis. No, that's <laughs> hilarious. He wasn't from, David wasn't from St. Louis. Oh my Louis. gosh. No, it all happened. Like, And one day I saw them kissing. I thought, oh. <laughs> oh, that's why we're oh, here. <laughs> What's happening? That's here? why we're not leaving. <laughs> well, certainly, one of the things that's changed uh, over the last couple of decades is uh, animals in yeah, circus. Yeah, and you know, you wouldn't. Uh, many states, including New York and California, don't even let you bring an elephant into right. the show right. anymore. Right. Um, what are your just general feelings on on that? Oh, I feel really sad about it. I yeah. mean, I think being well, you have a cat. Love between species is one of the uh, enriching parts of life. And uh, circus animals are very well loved. Um, to me, uh, PETA has won that publicity campaign, hands down. And that's really too bad. Of course, there are mistreated animals. There are also mistreated children. And the people in general. <laughs> yeah. And people. Uh, uh, you know, there's some people shouldn't be parents. Mm -hmm. And some people shouldn't be training animals. I think you, in the circus business, you quickly get to know who those people are and you don't hire them uh, just from the way that you just see a scene in the ring or you see it backstage. Um, anyway, I think, it's a, I think it's a huge loss and I'm afraid it's going to be an enormous loss for all of us when, we, when there are no more elephants. You know, I know. Because they can't survive. They're huge vegetarians. No. And one of the things that people sort of the PETA arm argument is like, oh, you know, it's so unnatural to have these animals working with yeah. people. They should be out in the wild. And in my mind, at least with elephants, I'm like, haven't we have a symbiotic relationship with elephants all over the world for thousands of years? Well, Asians is yeah. thousands of years. Africans oh, yeah. The less, Mahouts so. and their elephants. Yeah. I mean, the, so, and also, you know, I went to a uh, an elephant sanctuary in Africa. Mm -hmm. And it's basically baby elephants that they save because their moms have been killed, killed by poachers. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't really re be released to the wild. They try, but they, they don't know how really to survive. Yeah. And like their entire lives are, are with humans, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's who takes care of them. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a problem. Like, that's how Circus Flora got Flora. She was orphaned. Someone shot her mother. Mm -hmm. And it's like a human, they're not going to survive. Right. And so she was adopted. And at that time, it was considered, you know, like like it now is to take in rescue dogs. You know, right. they, at that time, it was like rescuing. Uh, now it's not considered a good thing to do at all. But uh, And maybe that's right. I don't, I just don't know. Yeah. I, I, but 
Flora, you know, grew up with people. And, uh, Flora's I, the name of the elephant. Yeah, she's yes. the name of the elephant, yeah. After Babar and, you know, there's oh, a Flora yeah. in that story. And the circus is named after her, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 She was one and a half when we started. Oh, my gosh. How did he how did he get her? Someone. Well, David's family were horse trainers uh-huh. or are. I mean, uh, very exalted horse trainers, like the horse trainers to the Queen of England. Oh, wow. Whitney's. You know, they're really I don't know how you describe that kind of horse trainer. Fancy right? horse trainers. <laughs> <laughs> and very well known uh, as horse trainers. And David had apprenticed with the Chipperfields, which was a circus in London, in, in England. And so the sort of animal circus world, which is pretty small, mm-hmm. knew him and someone just contacted him. I guess knew he was starting a circus. And I don't know, I, and David has died, so I can't ask him the exact sequence. But he had just gotten Flora um, maybe four or five months before I met Oh, wow. Can you talk a little bit about the growth of Flora from when you joined to what it is today? The shows? The Circus Flora? Yeah, the shows. (laughs) The growth. She grew very soon. Yeah, she's enormous now. Well, yeah, it it started uh, very deliberately as a theatrical circus and and still is. Um, It was, uh, as I said, in in, uh, Charleston, and then it was quite a success there, so we toured it and it was kind of David came from a large family his sister would help book and it was kind of like we're all employees of the family so that finally expanded beyond that so it had a staff Um, and it toured uh, quite a bit and then at the time of I think it was like 2008 2009 with that recession Mm -hmm. we lost the kind of corporate funding we'd had like people would bring us to Right. someplace and that just disappeared so really hasn't toured since then since maybe 2009 or 2010 oh, so it was just continuing to tour Louis. what it was continuing to tour up until it that was point. until oh, then wow. but um it just um it lost its bookings basically mm-hmm. um and it was a non-profit and uh, or is a non-profit i guess i can't remember the status right now but uh yeah but it was I think it was very hard for a lot of circuses at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was when Big Apple started to have problems as yeah, well. Yeah, right. When you say theatrical circus, uh, what does that mean to you? It means it had a narrative uh, um, and it had uh, sort of like in narrative enfolded the acts. So they're part of, of that, of the, it had a writer at that time. Um, so that's what it. Do you feel like you can do a narrative with circus without text, or text is sort of required to make a narrative work? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, you can do sort of a narrative, like a dream kind of narrative. I think um, I've always done it with text, whether it's poetry or uh, to to bind the world together. Uh, but that's it. I don't know. Certainly music, with music and image, you can you, you could definitely do it. A narrative. 
is there a difference uh, between working with actors and circus performers when it comes to telling a telling a narrative or having them be a particular character in a world you're trying to create? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's not much crossover between actors and circus <laughs> performers in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a, quite a different way to perform, and it's quite a larger venue. Um, you know, it, unless it's on a stage, but if you're in circus with tents and things, it's it's big and it has a demand to it of rhythm. Um, and circus performers also aren't actors. You know, uh, speaking without a task is really hard, you know, to, uh, and circus performers generally do best when they have a task, you know, whatever their specialty is or another couple of things. But, you know, that physically what they're doing, then they are electric and, and charismatic, uh, I think. And in addition to directing the shows, you're also often in them. Yeah, I do a white-faced clown. So can you talk a little bit about the tradition of the white-faced clown and where that comes from? It comes from, uh, well, like my white face is from a painting in the 19th century, which was, is a traditional, uh, you have a white cone hat, a big Traditionally, the most traditional is big blue velvet suit uh, and completely white face and one eyebrow, red under the nose and red ears. And that, if you're in Europe, you see that a lot in circuses. Mm -hmm. Um, And that comes from, before electric lights, uh, a lot of theater and circus was done in white face so you could see. Mm -hmm. It pulls your features out and you can see it. Um, And... You know, I think that's probably the same with mine. I don't know much about the history of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we started Circus Flora, uh, that was what I, you know, I was asked to create a white face, and I didn't really know how to do it, but it's an authority clown. It's a clown who speaks often and who also plays authority. It's not usually the one who falls over. Or um, the straight man, kind of. Yeah, kind of, or uh, the one you get around. Yes. So my image of it for me was Louis the Fourteenth, who thinks that the sun is me and that everything I do is right and I know everything. And uh, now we know lots of people like that, but at the time, <laughs> so yeah. that kind of character who thinks a great deal of themselves. I mean, I think that's a funny sure. person. If that funny person is not in charge of the world, and, you know, and it, and it gives room for the other clowns to see the absurdity of that person and get around them, which is helpful. Have you seen uh, Hamilton? Yeah. The the king character yeah, he, is pretty, is kind of like... the 14th character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess yeah. that's uh, using it in a... I think that's actually George. George, yeah, yeah George. George the third. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he does that. Right. He's like the, that's I'm important. Same. and I'm then, very, very important. Yeah. You're not. Yeah. 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 I think that's a great strain of, of comedy. Yeah. Know, is these... Well, and it's where it's where a lot of circus and theater both come from is making fun of the hierarchy of the structure, right. you know, or whether it's religion or yeah. government, you know, or whatever. It's just to turn it over and go, yeah, those. those so we can yeah. laugh about something. Yeah, so <laughs> one day a year, yeah. you can laugh at these people yeah. the rest of the time. Yeah. In, the, in the theater, yeah. So this year, you're directing the Big Apple Circus. Yes. Obviously, you've known and been around the Big Apple Circus right. since its it. creation. Yeah, because I've lived in New York. Did you ever think you'd end up directing it? 
No, that was that was just out of nowhere. That was completely <laughs> random. Uh, Randy, um, who? Wiener. 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 Yeah. He's also another <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> and Josh's old boss. Okay, yeah. there you go. So he he came to St. Louis, and uh, I'd never met him. And uh, it was a really hot day, and I was in makeup between shows, and so uh, we sat and talked in my trailer for a long time. I really liked him. Very few people to talk circus with mm -hmm. in the world, so that was great. And then uh, it was after that that he contacted me. They contacted me about that. But Jack had been working there a couple of months before that. Uh, I think in April he started. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you are able to pull sort of some of the original thoughts uh, that existed in the beginning back into Big Apple since you've you've been there for a while? Versus just to preface this this question. I would say, at least since I started seeing it in 2006, they often would pick a director who had just done operas or just done plays and uh -huh. had no circus experience uh -huh. uh, whatsoever. And you were sort of coming at it with an angle with a lot of circus experience. Right. I mean, one way or another at this point, I have a lot of experience. But, uh, well, I don't know. It's a, every, every show is its own animal. And uh, at the beginning of this show, I was... Thinking of, you know, of recreating but changing the show I'd been doing in St. Louis. That's where it started. It's completely changed. Was it based on a, ho a hotel? No, that was the show before. This one was at a grocery store. Oh, a grocery and store. It was about this lost mineral that allowed people to fly. Oh. Aurorium <laughs> that was hidden in the anchovies. Oh, nice. At the bottom of the lake. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh, cute. Yeah, it was very funny. And uh, I really liked that. But it needed to move to New York. And in St. Louis, there's this uh, grocery store called Schnooks, which in itself is a funny name. Yes, and sure. And it's everywhere. Everyone in St. Louis has been to a Schnooks. And we don't have quite that. No. You know, we, there's D'Agostino's, there's this, there's that. But we don't have that same, like... Fairway. <laughs> yeah, Fairway, you know, World Market, whatever. Right. None but of those have funny names on it. No. Names and also not a place that every neighborhood has been, you know, yeah. every echelon of society has been to. So that kind of morphed away and the anchovies left. <laughs> and I like the anchovies. They left us. And uh, so, yeah, we just, and we, it was some acts that I, that we'd had uh, that I'd known at Circus Floor and brought in, and then some acts that were already booked. So it was a, also a combination of factors mm -hmm. that uh, just. Uh, so it's, I, th I mean, now it feels like, like, to me, like it's where it wants to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we yeah. talked about that actually on the past yeah. episode because we saw Big Apple now a week and a half ago. Uh -huh. And I thought finally they were heading back in the direction of really quality circus acts. Oh, like, the acts are great. The yeah. acts this year are way better than the last five, six, seven years. Like really excellent acts. Yeah. But also seems like a rigging nightmare in there. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, well, it is. Um, you know, when we put up the tent and do the show in New Jersey. For, uh, we couldn't get that trapeze act up. Uh, mostly because the finale of, act. Yeah, the alias because of the fire marshals, really because of the, the guy the wires. Guy wires were going into, across the upper aisle, so we had to be all rethought, and literally rethought for here. And, uh, uh, Ali Sher is an engineer, <laughs> which you, engineering classes should come to the show just to look oh, at yeah. what he created there. Wow, you know? 
because it, it moves to four different positions during yeah, the act. During it's the insane. Act, yeah. You know, it's, it's all choreographed. And even yeah. like the cranking of the releasing yeah, of the crank, wires yeah. just feels like, oh, great. Like this is like building suspension. Yeah. You know, and you're watching the whole thing move. It's, yeah. It's really moving to me to, to see this, this nine people moving. And then all the other performers are, are cranking. And they're the ones right. doing the work to get to get them up. It's, it's a real company Effort. <laughs> well, what we also were talking about this year is it felt like there wasn't so much um, a theme. It was more like New York, uh-huh. um, right. which was kind of refreshing, I uh-huh. would say, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. um, it was just like really focused on the show and the acts uh-huh. and you know, Amy G as the pigeon. Uh-huh. But I, I said this on the last episode, but when she's like, get it together, pidge. <laughs> but when she said it the first time, I thought she said a swear word. <laughs> and I was like, wow, we're going risque. Like, get it together, pidge. And I was like, <laughs> and then she said it a few more times. I understood what she said. But I was like, oh my God. Wow. Putting in some adult language. But um, was that always the, in- I mean, obviously the intention at first was to bring the the theme of the grocery store. Yeah. But at what point did you switch to just kind of really focusing on, on New York? Yeah. Sometime in August. Yeah, um, this all happened very quickly. So uh, it was really in August that we were, re- uh, Jack and I write these shows together. So we were rewriting it. And I think it was in there that the grocery store thing left. And with it, the grocery store then had to go to the anchovies. And, because it didn't make, you know, why would right. you be talking about anchovies if you weren't in the grocery store? <laughs> and then it was a New York, like a street corner. But then that seemed like no reason it should be so specific to one place. Mm-hmm. But it was very important to us that it feel like New York, mm-hmm. like it include all of New York, uh, and and a, uh, and that and that is what felt right. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, in, in a, making a show, you have ideas, and then it doesn't feel right, so you shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and Storm is an amazing singer, so that. Is what took us in that direction. Yeah, the the um, ringmaster. Yeah, ring we saw her in Company XIV. Yes, I did. a very different feel. Very different <laughs> <laughs> More less family friendly. Yeah, right. yeah, but she was great. Um, it was nice to have the singing and, you know, like a- Amy G doing a mashup of like all like flying references, right. songs and stuff. It was nice to have. To have singing, uh-huh. you know. I'm on the yeah. ledge. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. Is, I'm on the ledge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got to see the show to know what we're talking about. Yeah, you know. have to go see Big Apple. Yeah, actually, we're just reworking that medley. But... Oh, okay. We'll go quick, then. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's in. That's just we're, we're changing it. Is I'm on the ledge? we changed the show quite a bit. Oh, really? Um, we'll okay, we'll, we'll have to go sure. back. Um, so one of your other gigs is teaching at ETW at, and are you still at ETW? No, oh, not anymore. No, you quit. I'm not there anymore. Oh, I never mind. Two years ago, but I taught there forever, so you can ask me about it. <laughs> okay, great. Did you teach Spencer Novick? I did. I oh, that's what I was going to ask. Yes, that's yeah, what I was he is our very good friend. Was in our wedding. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. yes, way back in the Smirkus, circus Marcus days. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's a lot of circusy clowning people that have come out of ETW, right. and often when people ask me about NYU's like Tisch acting programs, it should be Atlantic or Stella Adler. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, all oh, the cool kids came out of ETW, <laughs> um, but they're also all like in the hallway, like on all four, fours, like barking like dogs and weird animals. <laughs> so, you know, doing. Well, most of NYU thinks they just always take their clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could talk about just that program a little bit and uh, the way in which. Uh, 
you, like this is the kinds of trainings that you think is good for actors and performers in general. Well, I think ETW has uh, like some of the better dance minds at, at the moment in New York tend to be teaching there or coming through there, and that's so for it brings movement in very strongly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I teach voice very much with movement, and so they and and they teach acting with movement, sort of coming out of the. Kortowski, do you know who that is? Don't. He's an acting uh, theory. Um, oh, I don't know. Very physical. Okay. And that's part of it. Uh, so I think that's part of why ETW is what it is, because this very physically based acting program. Mm -hmm. um, so people like Spencer, who I don't know that he would have known where he was going when he started, that's kind of, uh, he went off there and, and we've been trying to, we we constantly talking to him about trying to do something with him. Like, oh my god, he's too busy. He's <laughs> too busy doing the same show, Blanc de Blanc, which we saw in Australia. We just saw in Vegas. Uh -huh. um, you know, he's he's always just yeah, he's busy, amazing. But don't give up. He has an apartment in New York City. He should Spencer. You should move here and <laughs> yes, come Spencer. back. Off the road. Spencer, I know Spencer's incredible. I mean, yeah. I uh, we we recreated his uh, sound effects act with him with the. Uh, um, intention of it being uh, like bullying at school uh -huh. and kind of overcoming that and yeah. he would be very good for that it That's was so idea. good yeah. he he performed it we, we never the show never came to fruition but uh -huh. it was like the most amazing I've ever seen him do that act because mm -hmm. it had comedy but also had a lot of feeling and yeah. like overcoming something which was I mean yeah. I, I hope yeah. we can see him do that act like live sometime because it was yeah. so good yeah, yeah. so what did good. so you taught at the school and what was your class called? Voice. Okay, voice. Voice class. Yeah, and in, in uh, most acting schools have a movement class, a voice class, mm -hmm. and acting class, and maybe improv. See, my musical theater, I was oh, it voices mm -hmm. to me is just always singing. Yeah, no, speaking voice, voice for, it's it's like an acting class, but it's uh, working on. Basically, hopefully, you're going to be in the theater for your lifetime, and so your voice is pretty mm -hmm. crucial. And how do you? Use it, maintain it, keep it exercised, mm -hmm. and have it work for you no matter how you feel. Yeah, or, right. Yeah. I I guess I was I, yeah I guess I I'm, I've really just always come from a musical theater background, uh -huh. not uh -huh. purely just acting. So I would always like warm up my voice like a right. singer would, right. but I never. You have to warm up as a you know. Yeah, as an actor, yeah, I just, of course people like, do it all the time and. Uh, Usually have some regimen of or other that ha, they follow. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I know. I I, oh, I talk loud uh -huh. sometimes. I'm like, sorry, I just learned to project in the theater because <laughs> our theater in school did not have mics. Uh -huh. Just yeah, most most of them don't. Yeah, old school. Old school. Yeah, yeah. So you, when did you leave? You said, um, I think it was two years ago. So what's then? What are you going to do without you and Huffy? Oh, I don't know. I know. Hubby's also a podcast guest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hubby's very happily ensconced in burlesque. So yes. He, he doesn't. Uh, he makes a cameo in, yes. in yes. Big Apple. Yeah, right? I thought he was going to come out in his bowler bear outfit. <laughs> yeah. Wrong. Don't. Maybe company XIV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you've seen so much circus in the development of circus in the uh -huh. U.S., do you feel like it's in a healthy position at the moment? Is it growing? Is it contracting? How would you describe the, the Well, of course, the big shows like Ringling and all and Big Apple have ha have been having trouble. On the other hand, there's huge burgeoning interest in circus mm -hmm. um, from your generation 
And I find that wonderful. And uh, the schools in Montreal and uh, Quebec and uh, France, less knowledge about it here, but lots of interest. You know, I mean, but there's no state support, of course. There's no, you know, <laughs> and Las Vegas is turning out to be the place. It really you is. Know. You know, there was a circus uh, panel yesterday at uh, SUNY, and I didn't have time to ask this question, but I'll ask it to mm-hmm. you. Do you think it's more important to have government funding or to have really successful companies? Because, for example, they're sort of talking about, oh, Montreal's so great because you get all this government funding. And I'm like, but is it great because Cirque du Soleil was such a success that then they give like extra funding and Cirque also supports all this network of people there? Like, right, is but it the Quebec chicken government. Chicken or egg kind yeah, of. The Quebec government seeded Cirque du Soleil. They gave him a million out of nowhere. He was a street performer. Now, you imagine someone oh my in the United God. States doing that. I wish they would do we, that for we, us. Yeah, nobody would do that here. No. And I think, uh, yes, I think there should be government support for the arts. More than we have, there should be an acknowledgement that it's really crucial to our lives. Uh, of course, circus is another, that's a whole other step is whether it will ever be considered an art form. But uh, by something like government funding. Right. I guess what, what The I'm, trouble with the corporate is... Uh, to me, they want a branding. They want a certain, I mean, it's individuals who create, you know, or get together with other individuals mm-hmm. and make wild things in their brain, um, not because they're necessarily going to appeal to, uh, I don't know, Disney or, or whatever other corporation, you, you know. So that would be my uh, concern is that they're not interested in innovation so much mm-hmm. and that if, if the state funds, you know, a certain number of individuals, see what happens with that. That that may be more likely to mm-hmm. be unusual, more unusual developments that we hadn't expected. Sure. Um, it's a very, you know, it's seeing also like in France, for example, where there is a lot of government funding, yeah. then you do get that, but you get on the flip side fluff, you know. Yes, absolutely. It, yeah, you know. it's true. And, and you know, in, in the Soviet Union before the, Collapse. There was everybody expected to have lifetime jobs, mm-hmm. you know, and that made for a lot of, you know, extra people that they were just expected. No matter how hard they they didn't need to work hard because they had a job for life. Mm-hmm. So it has its pluses and minuses, but uh, I think there might be a happy medium. I hope. Yeah. I think there, must <laughs> I think be there a happy is medium. too. Yeah. Um, well, I was just talking about, I came from a meeting um, earlier that with the board, head of, of the board of this nonprofit I'm on the board of named a new dramatist and, oh, it, yes. and uh-huh. it's an amazing organization, yeah. but we were talking about this at this time because he, he was a CPA during like the seventies when it was like nonprofits popping up every day Mm -hmm. and it was so easy to get funding Mm -hmm. and from that came like mtc and roundabout and all these wonderful theaters like atlantic Mm -hmm. and you know that came from that time and then prevailed Mm -hmm. and because i was actually having this conversation with him i was like but you know a lot of funding also creates a lot of not so great stuff yeah and he was like yes but the great rise to the top and then are there mm-hmm. and at least they've gotten the chance to rise. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's a good point because if you don't even get the chance, yeah. how is anyone going to, especially in the U S because it's hard to do commercial and nonprofit. So like, right. what's the, yeah, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it is interesting because the nonprofit also has a negative, which is a board of directors and, yeah. you know, and, and the whole 
complicated fact that they actually control it. Yeah, and can kick you, the founder, out. Exactly. So, you know, there's a... (laughs) Which has happened a few times. A few times, yeah. 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 Uh, So, yeah, I I don't think... I don't have an idea what's the better way to go. No, me either. Uh, Randy says it's easier to raise money from investors than to raise money as a nonprofit. Or this is not money my, you're raising. Yeah, I suppose yeah. That I don't. I don't know anything about that. So I'm just. I think so too, because actually I was talking about this as well. Because I think at least when you raise it from investors, there's the idea that you'll make your money back uh-huh. versus. Asking individuals year after year to continue to, to make continue a fifty to, do, yeah. grand donation that you'll they'll never see, right? You know, and at least with a commercial venture, you're supporting the art in the same way that you would be a nonprofit mm. because you still probably will lose most of that money. <laughs> but there's <laughs> the chance that yeah. you'll get it back, and you're investing most of the time once to create the show that could run year right. after year after year. Right. So, but I also, you know tend to have more of a commercial mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I do think that I understand what Randy's saying because I, I think that that, you it's know. In America, I think that's, that's definitely. Well, I, just being, you know, working for nonprofits and being on the board, it is hard. It's like, well, how do we find these new donors? Like, how do we yeah. find this yeah. new big gift? And, and it's, nonprofits naturally want to grow. It's like, that's yeah. the whole thing. Right. 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 What, what can we do this year better than last year? And well, actors get more expensive. This is, I mean, as an yeah. actor, you yeah. might yeah. not agree with me, but the off-Broadway community uh, or theaters are having a really hard time raising the the gap of the budget this year because equity raised the minimum weekly salary for actors, which is a wonderful thing. But the nonprofit theaters don't have more seats, like the small ones, not the nonprofits that have Broadway houses. Right. But, so it's, but they do tend to get a larger and larger administrative staff. Yes. True. But the yes, but the um the plays if unless unless you want to do a two or three hander play, mm-hmm. the play itself every single play almost needs an enhancement from a commercial producer yeah. to bridge the gap. Right. And it seems like a lot of the theaters are having problems because some are like seventy five seats, but the weekly actor salary is more than you could ever make in, you know, mm-hmm. if it's a larger cast. Mm-hmm. And I haven't noticed that off-Broadway salaries are very high. They're not very high, but I think the, <laughs> I mean, they change like to live on, $200. Yeah. And if it's a cast of. But for an adult with a family, $200 a week is a little hard to live on. Yeah. Nice. This is a good. Oh, no, they're not getting paid 200 They're getting paid for. No, sure. no. Oh, it's like a 750 uh-huh. with their benefits for the union. Yeah. And it's still, it's not a, a I mean, ton. I two kids on the but yeah. <laughs> without that, you know, there, yeah. there's insurance. There didn't used to be anything. No, yeah, there is insurance now. And I think the union is what keeps a lot of people going. Yes. But we need to be able to produce the shows. Yes. To pay the actors to have work. This is a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> it's great because I haven't been able to talk to someone who is an actor on this side of it, you know. Yeah, a union member. Yes, a union. <laughs> Proud union member. Yes. Proud union member. I'm a SAG member. <laughs> I have to pay my dues, I just realized. Oh, there you go. I don't, I'm like, I don't so want to give up. Soon to be a lap. I get all my free screeners. What? Soon to yeah, be a lap. I know I got called. But um. So are there any, you know, now that you've had the chance to really work in so many different important American circus companies. Is there any circuses or shows that are on your bucket list that you really want to work on or create or do? Well, I always have ideas for shows. That's more, um, it's more like, here's a show I'd like to do. Um, it's not necessarily the organization I would do it for so much as doing, I like to have a, a, 
I find it hard to do a show without a reason to do a show. You know, that something that I think mm. is important that that show is. Um, in in our time, of course, it's that we we in in circus work together a whole lot of people from very diverse backgrounds who don't necessarily agree with each other all work really hard to make something happen. You know, from the people who put up the tent, you know, to the people selling concessions, to the performers, to the grooms, you know, it's like, and the animals. I mean, that's, <laughs> animals love to, the animals who are good performers love to perform. They know what they're doing. And some are not so good at it. They usually don't, <laughs> don't stay in the show. But, um, anyway, I think that uh, is something that circus has to offer our society and say, it, we can, you know, we don't have to splinter apart mm-hmm. over age, gender, economics, politics. We don't have to do that. And uh, that's what popular theater means to me. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think it's what it meant at the beginning, of, you know, that people coming together, enjoying something together is in itself a political statement these days. Yeah, I know. know, Well, did you see um, Ellen DeGeneres was sitting and laughing with um, George Bush and people were giving her such hate? Mm -hmm. And she was like, when I say that you love each other and and respect each other, it also goes for people that you don't agree with. Yes. And I think it's it's so crazy when people are like, well, I can't go to that. I can't support that because I don't agree with their views. Uh Um, And you say that circus does feel like such a communal experience when you watch it because you can make noise you can get up and walk around you can cheer when you see something that's looking good not like sitting and i mean i love theater but there is something different when you 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 have like a candy wrapper and someone's yeah yeah unwrap your candies yeah and then people are like oh you know and like the laser pointers with the phones and you know i mean it is no it's a freedom Mm -hmm. um did you ever go to the grand old opry in nashville no No, but i really it's wonderful yeah i grew up going to it and uh, it is the same thing of like you know something for everybody and during the radio breaks there's yo-yo tricks (laughs) you know it's just like this wonderful atmosphere nobody stays still everybody's wandering around and and uh, and yet it's fun for people you know all different kinds of people they have something about it that appeals to them and that's what a circus has, I think. Oh, I think yeah. so, too. And there's something magical about a tent. Yeah. It's just it, you can't. Yeah. You it's, walk in, it's just like, wow, I'm in a tent. Is, yeah. They're wonderful. And a lot of work to maintain and expensive. And, so expensive. But, yeah. Josh did his thesis on touring a tent in the U.S., Oh, really? Why it's not so practical. <laughs> well, definitely. <laughs> the trucks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, the thesis that I wrote was, how come, is it possible for plays and musicals to go out in tents and build a, t- a tent touring network? And the answer in America is not really. No. Because it was like, you know, the cat, cats did a, yeah, attended tour right. that actually right. Ross Mollison worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't go well. It was challenged. Because of the expense of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Putting the tent up and down. Yeah. They bought a custom tent that had the cat's eyes on it. And uh, it's yeah. uh, there's just not the infrastructure. And America's a very big country. It's not like Switzerland or France where you can go 15 miles. Right. You have town. to go long, long distances. And then restrictions on where you can put up a tent. There's many more restrictions. And real estate's much more expensive now than it was. Much yeah. more. Even well, even just sound ago. sound um, leak, leak and, and, and rules. Mm-hmm. You know, you like you can't make sound after this. And, right. You know, and in a tent, it's 
yeah. canvas, you're like, I can't yeah. really control it, you yeah. know? So just makes it harder and harder. It might turn back, we'll see. I hope so. It's like the pendulum, right? Yeah, yeah it might, because it certainly used to be like, Religious revivals were intense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was all the, the term for like all over the country. Sort of like educational programming that would come through intense. That was like a mix of uh, speakers. What's the term for that? That's right. What is that? Um, inspirational. Yeah. Also, turn of the century, like yeah. late nineteenth uh, century, early twentieth oh. century. Especially in the Midwest. I yes, mean, that, exactly. My, family used to go to those things. Well, somebody write in who's smarter than us. We wrap up every episode by asking our guests the same three questions. Oh, okay. Um, the first of which is, has there been a piece of advice, either really good or really terrible, that somebody has given to you that stuck with you? Gosh, I don't think I have any such thing. The one thing I remember when I first directed was uh, an older European man who really didn't want to be taking orders from a woman <laughs> saying to me, are you asking me or are you telling me? And which was very difficult for me to not say, would you or right. could you or, you know, right. <laughs> I was just wondering so I finally you... said, I'm telling you. <laughs> 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 so that for me was, yeah, it's always stuck with me, that challenge is. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I'm telling you. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, this one I feel like should should probably be kind of easy for you since you've taught so many people. Um, but for our younger listeners who mm-hmm. want to become a circus performer or right. actor or just get into right. the arts, is there a book, movie, show, just a mm. reference that you would recommend they check out? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, Javi did a book on circus techniques, which is fairly clear uh, in terms of learning things or you know beginning things uh, which is probably good uh, there's a pickle family circus book with lots of photos of the that era I, from Terry Laurent yeah I think we have it uh, on our shelf it's a yellow book yeah it's a yellow yeah. book right yeah. it's a great yellow book uh, I would just then there's all kinds of books from over the last 150 years about circus in America and to to not feel there is no history here, there's a huge amount. It's just mm-hmm. gotten sort of neglected. Yes. And uh, circuses were touring all over, like when we were talking about, like Peru, Indiana was the home of a lot of circuses. When you go there, you can still see the rhinoceros barn, and, you know, stuff like that. And it disappeared. But, so knowing some of that, I think, yeah. is, is fun and inspiring in the sense, like, you don't have to go far away right. yeah. yes yeah the american circus uh history is is harder to to read about but we've learned so much about it through doing this podcast i bet you have yeah so much yeah. I, yeah. part of me wants to like listen back to everything and write it all down yeah. and, and you're like yeah. oh this is the timeline and yeah. so many people's paths crossed and you yeah. know yeah. interesting ways in this whole kind of like the nonprofit in new york time it was like this this circus scene in America mm-hmm. with all your generation of people, mm-hmm. which is like just so, yeah. you know, the pickle family. And for and- us, from before us, was the vaudeville people who were still alive. Right. And uh, what they, they were very generous. Well, I guess this their- is a good question to ask because maybe, maybe you'll suggest one of them. Um, who, who's a good person to have on our podcast? You seem to have had a lot of people. We did have a lot. We have a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, the question gets harder. I know so, it does. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Have you talked to a nuke? No. no. Yeah. Anouk's a good person. Um, and Laura Balding is an interesting person. Mm-hmm. She's an animal trainer person. Mm-hmm. 
Is she yeah. David Balding's wife? Wife. Exactly. Yeah, wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, Katja Schumann? No. Oh, she is great. She's in Denmark, so you'd have to. But she comes over here. We can here. Skype. She comes yeah. over here, and she's. The Schumanns were a Danish circus family, very well known. And uh, she came and here with, with her horses, who are. She's great, and married Paul Binder. Oh. And they have. Two, two kids who are... How did I not know Paul's... Okay. Yeah, so her name is Katja Schumann. Okay. And uh, she's extraordinarily smart circus person. Okay. Great research. I'm sure she was in uh, the... Because Paul was also on our podcast. <laughs> oh, <sure. Yeah. laughs> he was actually... It was interesting because he was on our podcast right when Big Apple was trying to get that last push of donations uh-huh. before going into bankruptcy. Uh-huh. And it was an interesting time for him, obviously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, would, I, I kind of want to have him back on now that it's yeah, gone through this whole thing. He said he's moving to Florida in two weeks. So he Did he? Oh. <laughs> but yeah. I'm sure he'll be back. Sure yeah, I know. I'm like, yeah. well, so those are all the great circus, you know, people uh, have to end up at some point. Yeah, Florida's so a great so state to retire to. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Talking to yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> and that was our interview with Cecil McKinnon. If you like our podcast, make sure to rate us on iTunes, follow us on iTunes, Twitter tweet us, email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. And get tickets to our shows, Beyond Babel. You can get those tickets on beyondbabelshow.com. That show's in New York City. And our show in Las Vegas, The Misbehave Game Show. Tickets are available at themisbehavegameshow.com. Have a good week. Our podcast is also available on Circus Talk, the international circus community's online resource and employment tool. If you are not a member yet, register and find your spotlight with Circus Talk today.